Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We are turning to John 15, and we'll pick up at verse 7. These are the words of Jesus to uh, the apostles, I think, on the route to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the word of the Lord. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So each of the five verses that we're looking at this morning, that I'm preaching this morning, feel kind of like independent proverbs, at least to me they do, yet they do all hang together. Verse 7 has to do with prayer, verse 8 has to do with bearing fruit, verse 9 and 10 have to do with abiding in God's love by keeping his commandments, and then verse 11 has to do with joy. What they all have in common is this, each of them is meant to encourage the disciples who will be facing life without Jesus. He's going to be crucified just in hours. Then he'll reappear for a few days, and then he's going to go back to be with his father when he ascends to heaven. And as I've been saying all throughout the last few chapters, Jesus is building up his men who will face leading the church and spreading the gospel without Jesus' physical presence. Of course, the Spirit will be given to them, and that's better, but Jesus will not be with them. So what encouragement did the apostles receive, and what encouragement can we then gain from the promises Jesus made to them? So first, verse 7 Here's my paraphrase. If, if you are born again and know my word, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be as good as done for you. You can ask in prayer whatever you wish and it will be as good as done for you. Now, that should have been wildly encouraging to those men, no doubt. All they had to do up to this point was turn to Jesus and speak with him, and they would have Jesus' wisdom, and they would have an answer and maybe a direction. Now they will need to pray. And that, as you know, and I know, um, from the struggle we have to pray is, is much more difficult. It's much more difficult to not have Jesus right next to you, and you're like, oh, a question occurs to you, and you just you talk to him about it. Now it's through prayer. To stop and put our minds on God 
And to pour out our prayers, it's not an easy feat, especially when our flesh and the devil and our devices are all conspiring against us, right? And what is especially strange is that this verse guarantees to those who abide in Christ that their prayers will succeed. I mean, it's, it guarantees you, if you are in Christ, that your prayers will succeed. And yet, we find it difficult to pray. It's really, really proof of our indwelling sin. How many times have you, you know, in the midst of an anxious situation, perhaps a sleepless night, had it dawn on you that you hadn't prayed about the situation? I mean, it's like you're like, huh, I haven't even prayed about that. You know, I just spent 12 hours trying to fall asleep, figuring out what's going to happen and all the permutations of this problem and and who do I need to talk to, and what's next, and not once stopping to pray to the one who has all power. You had certainly worried, but you hadn't prayed. Well, that's foolish, given these words by our Savior, right, our Lord and Savior. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And so the first thing is to believe those words and to believe them in the light of the power of Almighty God. Just believe them. They were stated, believe them. Nothing is impossible for God. And that omnipotent God says that your prayers will succeed. That is a stupendous truth, right? That for some reason we keep forgetting. It's an astonishing truth. We forget daily. Even after we have seen our prayers succeed, We still have a hard time when the next anxiety, you know, inducing situation comes along. We forget to pray. Now, of course, we must not merely ask for anything. This, This statement has to be qualified in some sense. But we must ask for anything that is not out of line with with God's word. We could lift up to God foolish prayers, right? We could, asking that we could, for example, break God's laws. You know, just let me me commit adultery this one time, God, and, and forgive that sin. That would be foolish and wicked, right? Um... So the anything here is qualified by anything according to his word. And of course, we do sin in the way we pray, asking with wrong motives, right, that James mentions. We can ask for things with wrong motives. We can, um, asking for things that are clearly meant to promote our own stature among men or asking for things that are merely meant to fuel our lusts or whatever it may be. We could ask for those things. No, we should avoid that. And so we don't ask for just anything. Uh, Do you remember the catechism answer to what is prayer? Any children? What is prayer? All right. (laughs) 
Must, must be in one of the sections that got reviewed a long time ago. Um, prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Right? So, the, the, did you hear that? It's an offering up of, yes, our desires. Offer up your desires to God for things agreeable to his will. And the proof text for that phrase, for things agreeable to his will, is from the Apostle John's first letter, and it amplifies and echoes exactly what John, you know, what we're reading here in, in his gospel. It's 1 John 5, 13 and 14. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Again, that confidence that, that those who abide in Christ can ask God things and it is as good as done if we ask according to his will. So it may be that some of you have been praying and praying and praying, and this is just the example that popped into my mind, praying and praying for a spouse. You want to be married. It's not necessarily a bad prayer. I mean, I've prayed for a long time that my children would, you know, have spouses. And that has not been his will for you. Perhaps you ought to consider praying for contentment in your singleness, (laughs) right? Perhaps that would be according to God's will. And then who knows, once you've denied yourself, perhaps God will grant you the desire of your heart, which was to have a spouse, right? But think about this. Would not contentment be a wonderful thing to have? It would far surpass getting married. Far surpass. Trust me. And I have a lovely marriage. <laughs> you people are wicked. I, I would die without my wife. I honestly would die without my wife. So I'm going to be one of those couples where, you know, she'll die and I'll die like a week and a half later from a broken heart. Honestly. But, but seriously, think about contentment. Think about if you were actually content, it would just be like the superpower. I mean, it would be un, unfathomably peaceful to be content, right? And so um, you think that contentment will come with a relationship, but in fact, it might not. Every new status in our life heaps the weight of responsibility on our heads. So Think beyond your own desires to what God desires for you, and he certainly desires for you to be content. And then pray accordingly. Calvin says when he promises that he will grant whatever we desire, he does not give us leave to form desires according to our own fancy. You don't, get, you, you don't just get to willy-nilly, you know, fluff up your own desires. The only way to do that properly is to study Scripture and find out what the will of God is. Our desires must mature from what I want, you know, from, from I want to be rich, 
because I know I'd be a good steward. I want to be rich and well-known and loved and liked and have this or that, too. I want to be godly and content and God-honoring. I mean, so often our prayers are in one direction toward these, these desires that aren't honed by the Word of God. And I think all of us can grow in, in this respect in our prayers, but it is really growing in respect to our desires. Examine your desires. We're very selfish. We're very short-sighted in our prayers, and therefore we do not ask boldly as we ought. Our prayers are weak because our desires are worldly and selfish and immature. It is an outlandish prayer to ask God to put contentment in your heart. It's outlandish. It's huge. It's crazy bold, right? It is less of an ask for God to give you a man or woman to marry. And I'm just using this as an example. I could have used a hundred other examples. But examine your desires and find out what God would have you ask of him. And you find those things out in the word of God. And so it is a, a process of, of, of honing your desires. Nevertheless, we need to remember that it is a promise that the prayers of the faithful will succeed, and that's the first thing. Those prayers we make according to God's will are, are sure. They are sure. So pray boldly after you have studied God's will in the Word, and pray according to His will. Mary, Queen of Scots, who had John Knox as a thorn in her side, said that she feared his prayers more than an army of 20,000 men. Right? We've all heard the story of John Knox being a thorn in the side of Mary, Queen of Scots. And I'm afraid no one fears my prayers. Um, they, they're weak. They are faithless. They are just shriveled up little, you know, give me a bottle of milk. Jesus' prayers. And that should not be, right? Sometimes we're afraid to ask according to the word because to ask according to the word requires such great faith because asking according to the word is asking for stupendously incredible things. God, pour out your spirit upon our nation. Hard to do that when, when you don't really have a love affair with your nation and don't really think revival is going to come. John uh, James 5.16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Can accomplish much. Next, verse 8 is another encouragement of Christ's apostles and of us. Fruit bearing. Fruit bearing, i.e. doing works that glorify God that arise out of our faith in Him, that are done in obedience to His commands, is the way we are to glorify God in this world, and it is the hallmark of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Bearing fruit will be the way that you show yourself a Christian. Now, just like our prayers having to be according to the will of God, so our fruit bearing must be according to the will of God. We do not get to tell God, think of this, we do not get to tell God what kind of works he will commend. We play that game a lot, though, don't we? 
Um, We do not get to tell God what kind of works he must commend. He tells us in his word just exactly what kind of fruit bearing glorifies him. It's all set down there. We might want to call the shots here and deem our selfish desires godliness. All of us do this all the time. We feel entitled to designate our bad fruit as good fruit. These bad things I'm doing are actually my good fruit. We feel entitled to designate them one way, and how do we do this? We, well, we tell our wives that, you know, golfing twice a week with friends is the way we are working to fulfill the pastor's push for men to be friends. And so you're, you abandon your wife for eight hours a week and your children, and, and you sanctify the bad fruit. You deem it good. We seek to go on the mission field because we really just want to live in New Zealand. Everybody wants to live in New Zealand, right? Raise your hand. It's beautiful. We do not pursue having children when we are married because we have a vocation we want to follow and we need time as a couple to get to know one another. Right? And that is sanctified as fruitfulness when it's actually the very opposite. And, and we, say, we say things like that. We want to get to know one another. And, and that is all to the end that we might have a more God-honoring relationship in the long run. We say, we leave off the tithe because we have debts. And tithing while having debt is stupid. How, what kind of good stewardship would it be if I have credit card debt and I'm tithing on my income? Boom. You know, these, these games where we try to make our bad fruit good fruit, we, we do these exchanges all the time. Um, we determine that cutting off the hand that causes us to stumble is unreasonable, so we come up with 14 justifications for keeping our cell phone which is just leading us into sin. But I need it for work. But I need it for this or that. I need it to check the weather. You know? We are all very sophisticated in convincing ourselves that our works are good when they are, in many cases, bad or not in accord with God's will. How many times have I myself made these kind of justifications? I mean, the list is very, very, very long. Right? I know that God requires something of me, and I determine that that cannot be because I have determined that some other fruit is better for me than what God would have me do. I mean, I'll bear fruit, but it's going to be according to my rules. And so we start, we, we, we start saying, I've got a long list here. Just stick with me. It is not time to tie and then we give our reasons. It's not time to respect my husband, right? Because he's not respectable, or he's this or that, or he's lazy. It's not time for me as a man to take up a second job, job to provide for my family because, you know, that would be to love money, even though we can't pay our bills. It's not time to attend a prayer meeting. I mean, can there be any good justification for that? 
It's not time to cut off the hand that causes me to stumble. It's not time to have children, even though I'm married. It's not time to have more children. It's not time to give up two income streams. It's not time to share the gospel with my family. It's not time to relieve other people's burdens. It's not time to do the reading for Triple B and gather with my brothers, right? Because I've got this and that and and this is good and this is the fruit I'll bear. It's not time to take on more responsibility. It's not time to give up a Saturday morning for a church work day. It's not time to write a letter of encouragement to someone who seems troubled. It's not time to say an encouraging word to somebody as you pass them in the hallway because, you know, don't want to call them out, don't want to make them feel awkward. It's not time to care about whether I can leave an inheritance to my children. It's not time to visit widows and orphans in their distress. It's not time to stop working on Sundays and keep the Sabbath day holy. It's not time to say a good word to my son or to my daughter. It's not time to discipline my children. It's not time to give up gaming and recreation. It's not time to repent of my loveless marriage. It's not time to drop my critical spirit. It's not time to start homeschooling my children. It's not time to lead my wife and family. I mean, on and on and on. We can take our bad fruit and we can sanctify it as good fruit. And and brothers and sisters, we're left with a life where we never have to exercise faith in God because we've insulated ourselves by coming up with ridiculous but convincing reasons for not exercising our faith. We've determined that there are good reasons why the kind of fruit-bearing God requires of us is either unnecessary or unreasonable. We have sanctified our lack of fruit and called it fruitfulness. And so, dear brothers and sisters, our lives are no different than those who have no profession of faith in Jesus Christ. We are barren. We are faithless. We are weak. We are expert justifiers of our own ways. And in the end, What is the impact of our fruitlessness? God does not not receive the glory he deserves, and we are not proven to be disciples of Christ. Yikes. That's the verse. Are you looking at the verse? God does not receive the glory that he deserves, and we are proven not to be Christ's disciples. It ought to be that every decision we make should be made as we search the scriptures and find out what our gracious Father desires and then conform. I so often preempt that work with foolish, self-centered justifications. I often don't want to have to exercise my faith. I want my immediate desires to be fulfilled, whether they are godly or not. And that is precisely where the fight begins. Will I justify my lack of fruitfulness, my lack of faith, or will I fear God and keep his commandments? I.e., will I love him? Will I honestly love God? 
Will I bear fruit in keeping with faith or will I bear fruit in keeping with my unsanctified desires? I mean, brothers and sisters, there's a conspiracy within the church to make sure that pastors do not push you to bear fruit that glorifies God. If a pastor pushes you to bear fruit, he puts his job on the line. Do you realize that? The Apostle Paul warned his son in the faith, Timothy, about it, and there is nothing new under the sun. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of, the, of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We relentlessly resist exhortations to fruitfulness because we so often push toward fruitfulness and works of faith that run contrary or that, that fulfill our desires. And our desires have been shaped by the world. And not by God's word, by feminists, and not by God's word, by masculinists, and not by God's word, by progressives, by evolutionists, by scientismists, right? And our de desires have been shaped by them. Our desires are formed by godless influencers and advertisers. And not by the God who loves us and gave up his son for us that we might live eternally. And so we fight against pastors and teachers and elders who push us toward works of faith. Works that take faith, hard works. We protect our desires and do not want to live by faith. We do not want to be sober in all things. We do not want to endure hardship and do the work of an evangelist and fulfill our ministry. We just want our cake and to eat it. That's what we want, and that cake is our desires, unformed by the Word of God. I mean, I wouldn't doubt that some of us here are so twisted that we could come up with reasons why an abortion would be good stewardship. We could come up with good reasons why sharing Christ to someone on their deathbed would be unkind. We could come up with reasons why prayer is impious passivity. We could. We could come up with reasons why effeminacy is Christ-like. And you see, our desires must be conformed to God's word. Our prayers must arise out of godly, scripture-formed desires. And our works, our fruitfulness, must arise out of godly, scripture-formed desires. This whole passage is about that. Some of you may be working hard to dismiss what I'm saying right now. And here's how you are doing it. You are saying that all the examples I've given are legalism. Legalism. 
He's so harsh. He's so judgmental. He's such a legalist, we say. He's telling us to bear fruit and all those things I don't like to hear or don't want to do have to be rejected because they're legalism. Legalism. How dare he imply that I have children after I'm married? How dare he, you know, consider marriage to be the place where you're supposed to be fruitful? How dare he say that I should provide for my family and I'm worse than an unbeliever if I don't? How dare he say that I should spank my children because it's in the Word of God? How dare he come up with specific examples of fruitfulness that actually impact something other than my inner life? <laughs> you know, well, I'm not being legalistic. I am not being legalistic. If I have been clear on anything lately, have you been at my Sunday school classes? I have been clear that our works will never justify us. Your works are nothing. They can't save you. They can't do anything to save you. They can't make you clean, right? I have been clear that our works will not justify us. We cannot save ourselves by what we do. It is only faith that saves, but faith is never by itself. Faith is productive. Faith is fruitful. Faith is powerful. Right? Faith without works is dead. So would you have me not exhort us to fruitfulness? At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, our Savior said, Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will, be, you will know them by their fruits. And then a few lines down. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. What was founded on the rock? How was it founded on the rock? Hearing the words of God and doing them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the on the sand, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. Fruitfulness is then hearing the word of God and acting on it. That's simply what it is. It is the evidence of God's work in you making you a good tree bearing good fruit. Now, that should be our joy. Yes, joy. <laughs> Bearing fruit should be our joy. Bearing the fruit that God desires us to bear should be our joy. Not playing the game of sanctifying my bad fruit and calling it good fruit and then telling God that this is the fruit he must accept, even though it's rotten. 
Fruitfulness acts on faith. Putting aside our own desires to follow God's commands glorifies our Father in heaven and shows the world that we are unashamed disciples of Jesus Christ. Unashamed. Is that what we want to do? Glorify God and proclaim to the world that we are His children, that we are members of His household, that we are followers of His Son, we are, we are recipients of the Holy Spirit. But we're so short, short-sighted, aren't we? we? We view acts of faith as missed opportunities to live according to our own desires. Acts of faith as missed opportunities. Missed opportunities to enjoy this life. That's how we, we view acts of faith. It makes me think of those words that many of you know from Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Are we willing to give up our unsanctified desires to gain the well done of God even in this life, to gain all that goes with demonstrating to others our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Live by faith. Live by faith. Live by faith. Bear fruit by obeying God's commands. Trust God to give you far deeper satisfaction in the things you do by faith And because of faith, then the satisfaction that you would come by going after the pleasures of the world. In fact, look at verse 11. Jesus has exhorted to prayer and fruitfulness and obedience to what end? That his joy might be in us and that our joy may be made full. I hope that we will believe this before too long, right? We think that the yoke of Christ is a burden, don't we? We think that obedience to Christ's commands and the hard fruitfulness laid out before us in the, in the Word will lead to, you know, life passing us by. But it is the path to joy, joy, joy. You're servants of God, bear fruit for Him. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. The joy that Jesus has, he puts in us, and that our joy may then be just off the charts, full. In other words, if in the path of your life you are very careful and conscientious about your prayers and your fruitfulness and your obedience to Christ's commands, you will find joy. That's what you'll find. That's what you'll get. You'll find joy. Do you believe this? Do we believe this? Do we believe it on a Tuesday afternoon and not a Sunday morning? Do we believe it when five of the six children are vomiting in our living room? Is faith in God and fruitfulness to His glory and obedience to His commands the path of joy? So said our Savior, 
and our Lord Jesus Christ, and so says the inspired Word of God. Jesus that day encouraged his disciples to faithfulness and fruitfulness and prayerfulness and obedience because it was his desire that his people be joyful. Joyful. Do we believe this? Do we believe it on a fri- on, on the, the, uh, it's the 20th day of the month and there's no money in the bank account? And you don't get paid till the 1st. that the path to joyfulness is not through bodily sensations or psychedelics or worldly ambition or wealth and success, but rather it is through abiding in Christ and therefore doing what pleases him. The apostle apostle Paul wrote about this path of joy in his second letter to these worldly Corinthians. Worldly just like us. He says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. To be pleasing to him. How do you please the Lord? Bear fruit. Bear fruit according to the fruits that he names in the word. Is it your main desire to please God? Is it your main desire to be joyful? Then your main desire will be to please God. If you want fleeting joy, well, you can get that from the world. If you want abiding joy, you can only get that by setting out to please God who has given you the wonderful gift of peace of conscience in Christ through your justification by faith. Test me in what I'm saying today. Test me. Test me in this. Take a step of faith or obedience this week, and see if you are not more joyful than when you have attempted to baptize your disobedience. Take a step of faith. Do something hard, because God requires it in his word. Make it your ambition this week to be pleasing to him in concrete ways. And I trust the joy of the Lord will fill your heart. See if if you find out what what God desires, and that obeying leads to more joy than pursuing your uninformed desires. In other words, rejoice in the things that cause our Savior to to rejoice. When When you do so, you will find a wholesale increase in your joy. So test, test, test what I'm saying. Will you do this self-examination this week? Will you contemplate where you are purposefully ignoring God's commands so that you can fulfill your own desires. And then will you pray that God would change your ambition, right? That you would live a life where the first question you ask is what will glorify God and not the the question you've been asking, um, how can I fulfill my immediate desires? Ironically, the latter question does not lead to joy, but the first does, even though it lies down a path of self-denial, suffering, and persecution. It's the paradox, again, of the Christian life. Joy comes through suffering, just as it did for our Lord. Let's pray.
Father, we ask you to forgive us for not knowing your word and so not knowing your will and so not knowing what our desires should even be. And we also ask you to forgive us for knowing exactly what your word says and still not being willing to produce that kind of fruit. And so, Father, I pray that in the pursuit of love towards you and having Christ's joy within us and our joy made full, that we would produce fruit, good fruit, fruit according to your will. Help us in this, Father. Stir us up by your Holy Spirit. Give us the faith that is necessary to do hard things to be self-sacrificial. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.